I think you'd look pretty good with a Teddy Roosevelt mustache and a side part. How come you haven't pulled that one off yet? Well, I have. Didn't you know, Steve? I mean, one of our first campaigns, I, I, I went to the Republican National Convention with a trunk full of cardboard cutout Teddy faces. And we handed them out to thousands of delegates. And it was fun to see them popping up on the floor. I <laughs> I walked around the floor of that convention with my Teddy face on, in part to, you know, spread the message of joining Republican and also, uh, you know, just to hide my identity. Coming up on this week's Interchange, we'll talk to the man behind the Teddy Roosevelt mask about moving Republicans on climate change. First, a quick mention of our sponsors who are putting in place the business solutions to climate change. Wonder Capital is helping people like you invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. and earn up to 7.5% annually. To learn more about how to diversify your portfolio and help America's solar industry, go to wondercapital.com GTM. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com GTM. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. We're also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, which makes the products that improve the cost and reliability of solar projects. Shoals has been serving developers with the best balance of system components in the industry for decades. To learn more about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level, visit Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome. Here's a question we've been asking ad nauseum for the last decade in American politics. What will it take to rally Republicans around climate change? Ten years ago, in the summer of 2009, the U.S. House passed a cap-and-trade bill. It felt like a real shift. And then it died in the Senate months later. It was incredibly jarring, not just because the bill was killed, but because the already tense politics of climate got way more intense. The rise of the Tea Party, anti-Obama sentiment, an influx of money against pro-climate candidates, they all collectively and completely froze the issue. And then Republicans just stopped engaging, and the ones who did believe in finding solutions were either primaried out of office or they just fell silent. One group, Republic EN, has been working hard to rally grassroots support in Congress for conservative free market climate solutions. They're small, and they're working with a party going through a very volatile transition, to put it lightly. But Alex Bosmoski, the group's managing director, sees reasons to be hopeful. In this week's conversation, I talk with Bosmoski about all kinds of topics, how to reach conservatives, how to categorize Republican lawmakers on climate, and why convincing politicians may not be as hard as it might seem. We start off by talking about Republican voters. Bosmoski says the issue isn't as split as it might seem. National and local politics are often very different. Yes. I think that's true for almost any issue. Does that happen frequently in your experience? Yeah. You know, we travel a lot around the country and talk to a lot of conservatives from different walks of life that identify with different factions of the party or that use different adjectives to describe what kind of voter they are. And we have a lot of really terrific conversations. You know, I think that conservatives don't usually feel heard on these sort of issues. Uh, they feel condescended to a lot. You know, there's a lot of bluster on the left. Maybe they don't feel like their values or worldview is particularly welcome in the conversation about solutions to environmental problems. But when you, if you can approach with a with a open mind and you know, some respect and love for 
these folks and you're one of them, um, then I, I find plenty of conservatives are happy to talk to me about climate. You know, I'm just one of you and this is the thing I really care about, you know. And so they pay me the respect of listening and I do the same and you can have a you can have a productive conversation. You say that you talk to a lot of people and that conservatives are willing to have a conversation about climate change largely, but that they feel like they're being, um, you know, shouted at or talked down upon. And I'm, I'm curious as to how you think we should be talking about this issue, because it is a very strange situation in that one party largely is talking about climate change publicly. You have one party that has institutionalized solutions to climate change, right? whether they're the right or wrong answers, that's beside the point. They, they've made it a part of their platform. And so like, because of the urgency of the problem, people are pulling their hair out trying to, to uh, raise awareness of the urgency. And you have one party that's sort of institutionalized not talking about it. So how do you break beyond that and have individual conversations so that people feel like the polarization, you know, isn't in their face? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's a hard one too. Um, it, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what you, what's worse, Stephen? Well, is it worse to be hair on fire uh, about climate impacts and climate urgency and then follow it with a slate of demands that have almost nothing to do with reducing emissions, you know, let's say nu- shutting down nuclear plants or banning fracking or stopping infrastructure or limiting trade. I mean, some of these go-tos of the of the environmental left that you know, if if anything raise emissions and but because there's a, they have a total monopoly on the issue, it, it's totally it goes unchallenged. Or you know, to keep your head in the sand and not talk about any solutions. I mean, fake solutions or no solutions. I, I mean, they're both pretty annoying to the folks that work on climate change seriously, that take the issue seriously, that want to see us come up with durable bipartisan solutions to this. Uh, and it is, I think, yeah, both sides make it worse. You know, when, when Democrats talk about it in a political way, it makes it worse. When Republicans, you know, dismiss it in a in a divisive way, it makes it worse. So you know, a lot of people are making it worse. I think in a conversation like this, it's very easy to simplify the environmental left, just like it's easy to simplify the right. There are plenty of people within the environmental movement who adhere to free market principles, um, who are not necessarily liberal, uh, or if they are, they are more than happy to reach out to the right. And you interact with a ton of these groups all the time. Um, You know, many of them are very well-meaning. How would you describe the environmental movement in terms of the people that it's it's often characterized as like a leftist movement, but I think it's pretty diverse within the environmental community, more diverse than it may appear um, given their influence on democratic politics. So that's a, that's a great point. And it's very true. And, you know, the, the national Audubon society, the national wildlife federation, environmental defense fund, uh, the nature conservancy, you know, these are conservation and environmental organizations that really do work to try to advance 
bipartisan solutions and are open to market-based um, and, and free market approaches to solving big problems. And they, you know, they deserve, you know, respect for that. Um, and I think, you know, depending on the political moment, they, you can sometimes veer towards or be pulled by the Sierra Clubs, LCVs, NRDCs, Greenpeace kind of thing over toward the left, because there's definitely pressure to do that from the most active base of environmental politics, um, which is progressive, um, politically active, progressive Americans. Um, and they tend to be pretty lefty. Uh, the, the the active base of environmental movement um, at this moment. And it's because, you know, some of those other groups have turned into functionally corollaries for the Democratic Party. So it is hard to maintain that independence as a and that 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 focus on the environment and on conservation, on the founding missions of these organizations when there's a lot of pressure to, you know, move over to the left. Uh, I mean, for right now, for example, you know, you got a lot of good Republicans that are strong on environmental issues, that are strong on climate change. They're climate realists that are searching for solutions and and they're in tough general election fights. And it's, you know, you get some environmental groups uh, that are focused on helping those vulnerable Republicans because they understand that having a bipartisan, you know, having bipartisan policies are the only way to make sure they're durable and it's that these Republican members are very important. And then there's other folks that see the, you know, the Trump administration as hollowing out some of their most important, you know, protections and rules and regulations. And that for them, they see flipping the house as the most important, you know, goal um, for their political arms. So they're going to go after those vulnerable Republicans and, they're going after like some great environmentalists there, but they're doing it to flip the house. And, you know, you, you can, you can justify that from an environmental perspective, but it, it really functionally makes them, you know, acting as corollaries of the democratic party. And I think a lot of Republican voters can understand that dynamic intuitively that the environmental movement to to a large extent has become part of this basket of progressive, you know, groups that uh, the, sustain the Democratic Party. And it makes you feel a little bit not, you know, not at home or not welcome in that in that community because you're, uh, you know, that, that, that's not that doesn't comport with your worldview. That's not who you are. What influenced the shift in the Republican Party the most when it comes to climate change? And I'll give you my opinion. I mean, after 2009, when Americans for Prosperity basically put a a flag in the ground and said, we're going to spend money to kick out of office anyone who talks about climate change. And then we saw, you know, some other major um, Republican donors follow suit. That seemed to be the moment where everything changed for the Republican Party. So it does seem to me to be almost entirely a money issue uh, I, you know but but that that there that wasn't a cause right that that was also a symptom um what do you mean exactly well you know I, i'd say the, the the one word answer to your question is obama um that there was a swelling of kind of dark populism around the opposition to obama and 
then when Obama makes this a, a key issue, you entrench a base, you know that that has to come up with reasons why it's not a it's not an issue, or that uh, why you know Obama's a socialist for caring about it, or the opposition to Obama was so intense that uh, it poisoned you know things that he cared about in a lot of ways. So do you think if we had John McCain or Mitt Romney as a president, we'd be in a very different situation because there wouldn't have been that level of opposition? Yeah, I do. And, and I don't I don't think that I think so. I, I you know, and, I, and I'm not trying to this isn't an indictment on Obama at all. I mean, I, I disagreed with the president on, on a lot of things, but I don't think it's his, you know, uh, well, I, it's definitely not his fault necessarily of all of the opposition to, you know, the knee jerk reaction to some of his his policies. Um you know, then we had this civil war in the Republican Party about that time, you know, with the Tea Party sprouting up um, and fighting, you know, the Tea Party versus the uh, whatever, the so-called establishment. And there was an, another bifurcation of the climate issue, which sort of where the Tea Party purists were in opposition and the establishment were more, you know, realist and <laughs> not necessarily leaders, but just not necessarily demagogues. Um, and then, and, and now that civil war has simmered down because we have this new political realignment in the offing here where, with, with Trump, um, that's just totally knocked all the chess pieces off the board and everyone's trying to figure out what game we're playing now. Yeah. Cl- climate is just a, a low salience issue. Like climate gets tossed around with the waves of politics much easier than, you know, issues that anchor people's political identity. And there's very few Republicans whose political identity is anchored anymore by conservation or, or environmental or climate issues. Um, you know, there there are some, but you, it's you got to be you know pretty thick skinned because the the orthodoxy in the party is not welcoming of your of of of, of that issue that you feel makes you conservative. I mean, you're probably long gone from the Republican Party, or maybe you call yourself a conservative, but you're really alienated from from Republican Party, or uh, you call yourself an independent. And you got conservative values, but you're really alienated from politics, and you you know you're not politically active anymore. So basically, what you're saying is that uh, climate change just gets kicked around, and we make it sound a lot more important than it is because we're so focused on the issue. But it's such a low priority issue that it just kind of gets kicked around based on the state of politics in in a lot of ways yeah on the in the republican party definitely uh it is a higher salience issue among democratic voters but they have no competition so it it doesn't get kicked around that much uh, because (laughs) there's no one's trying to take those voters away from them people that have climate change high on their priority list uh the only people talking to them are are democrats that's not totally true in the whole country. I mean, there's some Republicans that are that are pretty great about um, leading on climate. But yeah, I, I mean, you you brought up a money issue with Americans for Prosperity and, you know, the Club for Growth and the, the, the primaries. Um, and that's part of it. But it, it's just it's because it was it's one of it's I, I don't know if it's because climate was really high on their agenda. I mean, yeah, it was on the agenda, but it's also a really easy issue 
to demagogue. It's a really easy issue if you break from the orthodoxy to, you know, evidence as your disloyalty to the party or to conservatism. You know, if someone says, yeah, I think we should we should take action on climate and you can just mangle that sentiment into a socialist world government conspiracy in just in two turns of phrase and a interview with Sean Hannity. I mean, it just takes it's so easy to to politicize for your own purposes. I mean, think about the the cap and trade bill. I mean, I think it, I mean, it took Sean Hannity. I, I wonder how long it actually took him when they're sitting there prepping for the show to turn cap and trade into cap and tax. I mean, I don't know, like a, a minute. It just, yeah. It, and then boom, it's dead. I mean, it's just so easy to kill. I mean, everything in American politics is always easy to be easier to be against than to be for. And with climate change, you need to be for with like enthusiasm and perseverance for a long time. And you're never going to get rewarded for it because no one's ever going to come up to you on the street and say, oh, I was personally benefit. You know, thank you for saving us from these, you know, storm surges because they'll never know that they were actually saved from a storm surge or that, that one inch of, of, uh, of sea level rise that we might've be able to prevent over the course of many decades at any kind of real impact on their life. You're not going to meet someone whose life was fundamentally changed because of our action on climate change. It's, it, it is in, in many respects, a thankless mission or a, a cause because the only t- people that the only people are going to really remember us if we're successful at, at, at beating this, at um, solving this problem uh, are in, is if we fail they'll remember us for failing. But it's going to be hard to be remembered for succeeding. Okay, so this conversation around national climate politics gets a little frustrating because of how frozen they are. But you can do something. There are lots of business solutions. One of them is Wonder Capital. You can make money while combating global climate change and supporting America's solar industry. Since 2015, individuals like you have invested tens of millions of dollars using Wonder Capital's solar investment platform. And those solar projects, they've created enough electricity to offset more than 75 million pounds of CO2 each year. And they're helping investors like you earn up to 7.5% annually. So to find out more, go to wondercapital.com GTM. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com GTM. And there's another company out there making solar projects cheaper and more reliable day after day. It is Shoals Technologies Group. It doesn't matter the product, a combiner box, a junction box, monitoring system. Shoals makes it with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. Shoals has been serving the solar industry for decades, and it still carries the same passion for designing solar products. If you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions, go to Shoals. You can find out more at Shoals.com, S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is why the politics of renewable energy interest me so much, because I think you can bring a lot of people around on this issue, and it's 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 really hard to be against renewable energy these days, and the and the, the polling backs that up. I mean, renewables and like tax support for renewables is polling into the eighties, ninety percent. I mean, it's like absurd how high the polling numbers are for renewables. Actual jobs are being created around the country, and so it, it's it's at least good politics to not be against renewable energy, if not for renewable energy. And so I think you can be. It's a lot harder 
to spin renewables or low carbon energy than it is to attack climate change. And so I think the politics have shifted quite dramatically in favor of action, even if we're still not really talking about climate change in the way that we should be. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's very true. The polls bear it out, just elections bear it out. The number of Republicans actively talking about clean energy and and positioning themselves as champions of clean energy, you know, bear it out. It is a much easier avenue to reducing emissions. Unfortunately, when you know, it's not enough to support clean energy, you know, in in a generic way or even in specific ways with subsidies or at a state level or with you know R and D policies or um, inside baseball stuff, you know, like FERC reform. It is, uh, it's just not enough, and it to you know to rise to the the challenge of the of the climate problem that we're you know trying to address and also the you know the urgency with which we would need to do it is hard to just manifest out of jobs or out of a different narrative that doesn't have to do with reducing emissions um which is you know something that i i think about a lot and i just haven't you know i haven't figured out the answer yet it is it's true that it's easier to push on the renewable energy buttons but how far can you go without a underlying without you know mentioning or or creating buy-in to the purpose or the reason for urgency i i I don't i don't know the i mean what is the reason for urgency on clean on on clean energy if we're not going to talk about climate i I, the terrestrial pollutants that's a good argument i mean and people actually could you know really would really benefit i mean they'd live longer fewer kids would have asthma there's a lot of you know, health benefits. And, you know, our colleagues at George Mason are working on communicating those health benefits. And it's fascinating work and it makes a makes a difference. But um, is that where the urgency is? Is it in is it in the public health conversation? I mean, I I don't know. It it, it doesn't make sense to me to to proxy for to to do action with a proxy motivation. Um, because the the real motivation is you know unspeakable i i just i haven't wrapped my head around it yet but there are sure are a lot of people making their living you know on, on advancing that narrative well this is part of the problem right it's not enough just to focus on renewable energy it's not enough just to focus on public health and slice it up and hope that you come to some kind of climate strategy but when you start talking about all these things together and the entirety of the problem you start talking about government involvement in some way And a lot of folks on the left argue wartime involvement, you know, massive government intervention. There's no way around it. And that's what scares a lot of people on the right. So when you start to bring this conversation together in its entirety, I think you start raising a lot of fears. And I wonder how you reconcile that. You know, you you if you want to have this this full scoped conversation you know, you do start talking about a pretty serious role in government. And and your vision for that role is a heck of a lot different than, you know, someone on the on the environmental left. But I think just having that conversation is what enables people to attack it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I you know, the the truth is this you know, the real scary amount like government involvement, I don't even think it's in mitigation. 
I mean, sure, it, it, it's a it's a bummer. It's economically um, suboptimal. It's uh, it's anti growth. It's liberty restraining in a way to have regulations to mitigate greenhouse gas pollution um, or to spend tax dollars on advancing a particular technology. But the real scary in government involvement is adaptation. I mean, if, if this gets out of hand and we are spending hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars to, you know, move millions of people and to engage our military overseas in water wars and mass migrations and the conflicts that arise from that. And I mean, when not in Louisiana, when they, you know, have a, a plan for a $50 billion dollar you know, public infrastructure plan to adapt to sea level rise, that is a big government policy. I mean, how else can you describe it? It's the government spending more than they've ever spent anywhere else on a, on a, on an infra, on a coastal infrastructure projects um, over many decades to adapt to the changes caused by climate change. And that's just going to get worse. So I, I, I mean, and a it, lot of prominent commentators have basically said that if you think if you're worried about government intervention now, wait till climate change is a much more acute problem. You're going to see, you know, a lot more government involvement, and that's going to be a heck of a lot scarier than it is today. I don't know. It strikes me as a as not a terribly effective argument for folks on the right, just because it feels like. Um, the left talking down to people, but you know, you're obviously coming from the right and, and talking to folks about this. How well does that argument work? I, I don't, I don't, I don't use that argument usually. I mean, it, it really, anytime you conjure up these like images of a dystopian future and you say you better do this or else, I mean, that just does not work. I'm just telling you personally, <laughs> personally, it scares me, but personally, I think we're, you know, in trouble. Um, and that the, the role of government is in, in this issue is just going to grow and grow and grow. And the way to avoid that is with, you know, aggressive mitigation. And I think that that's also where the left and the right could have a productive exchange of ideas, competition of ideas on mitigation. The most powerful engine of human prosperity and innovation, you know, in, in history is the free enterprise system. And that's what we need to unleash on this problem. And you can't when the market is broken. So right now, you know, pollution is free. Costs are socialized across all these unconsenting people and, and, and communities that um, are paying the costs of climate change with, and, and terrestrial pollution. Um, but all the profits from the creation, you know, from the in industries and, and activities that cause that pollution are privatized and the costs are social, the costs are socialized. And that, that problem does not, I mean, that, that market failure does not support free and free market innovation to, you know, create low carbon sources of energy. And so that's where I think conservatives will, you know, want to get involved. If it's not us, it's going to be someone else. So you just uh, encapsulated the mission of Republic EN. Is that how you guys are talking about the issues with, political leaders and in, in public forums to a large extent. Yeah. You know, but you, you have how to do people meet, respond. Well, you meet people where they are too. So everyone, people have different motivations. I mean, you can you approach this issue from a lot of different angles. I mean, there is a, there's compelling faith um, and, and creation, you know, uh, motivations to, to 
steward our planet and to be, you know, leaders of, uh, of conservation of, of God's creation. There's national security motivations um, because yeah, it's our, it's our uh, men and women in uniform that are being in harm's way with a lot of these climate impacts causing conflict around the world. And it is, there are um, tremendous, you know, economic motivations for getting this right. Uh, not just because of the economic cost, but because of the economic opportunity. And we tend to, you know, uh, we tend to drive in the economic lane because that is the most cross-cutting value of republicanism, conservatism, libertarianism is uh, free enterprise. So we think that can unite, you know, a, a, a broad spectrum of the center right in America around climate solutions is doing it, solving this tremendous problem, summoning American greatness to solve this problem in a, you know, pro growth way and a pro growth way. That's not just self-interested, but it is, it's globally minded. What are your thoughts on climate hawkism? So making climate change an issue like national security. The right historically or in you know recent decades has completely owned national security. They were national security hawks. If you opposed their national security policies, then you were soft. You were weak. And a lot of folks on the left are trying to do the same thing for climate change. Do you agree with that approach? Can, can, if, if you use if you oppose climate climate action, can we make you look uh, weak and soft and, and right. Um, it, I think we can make it, uh, I think we can make you look old and mean, um, <laughs> maybe not weak right. and soft. Maybe it's the same thing. I mean, there, there's something in there that, that the, the what's the common thread between national security and climate or, or, or and, and climate action. Traditionally, if, if, if you're defining national security, the way that Republicans did in the, uh, for for like the last, uh, well, I guess post Eisenhower, it's it's like interventionism, right? I mean, the hawkism is 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 extending America's influence, um, which is an accepting sacrifice for you know values, um, and not necessarily for self interest, but for the extension of American values. And I mean, that's the Republican Party I grew up in. Um, but on climate, it's not, it's not the right message because we're not, I mean, some people on the left try to make it about sacrifice, but I I don't think this is about sacrifice. I think it's just about the government being the cop on the beat to ensure that everyone's playing by the same rules. And right now some market actors get all sorts of benefits and, you know, because they're, you know, subsidized by the government. And the, I mean, that big, the biggest subsidy is this, you know, free pass to pollute. We're not calling on Americans to make some big sacrifice for in, in the name of our American values. Right. But I think you can you can push those American values. So if I were a politician and I were running against someone who were, you know, a climate skeptic or opposed to renewable energy, I'd just point over and say they don't believe in American innovation. Uh, they don't believe that we can unleash the the power of American workers to um, build the economy of the 21st century. And I think that's pro- the tenant of 
climate hawkism. It's not necessarily saying you're weak in the traditional sense. It's saying you don't support the economic wave um, of solutions to this problem. And, and I think that more people are realizing that they can stand up and take an affirmative stance like that, um, which I think has the same impact as as the Republican stance on national security. I mean, I, I think in de facto, I think it kind of it makes it can make people look weak if they're if they're caught flat footed and they're not supporting that like wave of of innovation because it's pretty clear you know where things are headed and and so more and more politicians are waking up to that uh, in my opinion at least. Uh, it's, it's a sound argument. I, I think you're it's it's true at least in rhetoric on the campaign trail um, and. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the, you know, the Congressional Leadership Fund, it's Sheldon Adelson's shadow camp, you know, soft money shadow campaign to support, to retain the majority by, by running uh, hyper local campaigns. And I think they're up to like 34 or 35 congressional districts and they do local polling to, to figure out which issues to focus on in those local races um, and they can't coordinate with the campaign, so they're sort of totally separate, right? Um, and they try to identify what issues in this potential wave election could retain, you know, the the loyalty of high propensity swing voters in these in these key districts. And and some of these districts, you know, they're typically pretty safe, like like Peter Roskam or um, Brian Mast. Um, and what was interesting is there was a political article. Uh, a couple of weeks ago um, that was mentioning some of the issues that some of these local shadow campaigns were running with. And in Peter Roskam's district, it was Great Lakes. Uh, it was a, a Great Lakes restoration initiative. And in Brian Mast's district, it was a Lake Okeechobee conservation um, project. In Brian Fitzpatrick's district, it was something to do with clean water. And so they're finding that these you know, conservation or clean or, or um, and, and I, I, I for, I'm sure clean energy is in some of those districts, but this, these environmental conservation, clean energy issues are increasingly being identified by the moneyed, you know, establishment on the right as important um, issues to, to champion if you plan on keeping your seat, you know, in a, in a year when Republicans aren't popular. But, you know, I think uh, you could also answer that question in, in a pretty damning way. Like, all right, no, I'm, I am the one that's for American free enterprise and innovation and jobs. You, you're wrapping a nice bow around what, you know, uh, a platform of regulation and economy sh- shrinking, and job killing government mandates and if you think that this is the next wave in the economy so much, then why do you, you know, want want to write all these laws to put the giant thumb of the government on the scale of the economy? So there are a ton of different factions within the pro climate wing of the Republican Party. Um, there's like the Green Tea Partiers who are about individual choice, and you know they actually support interventionist policies forcing utilities you know to open up choice and i i know i have a number of republican friends who um you know maybe are pro clean energy but can't stand the green tea party 
because they, you know, are fairly interventionist. Um, you've got, you know, maybe practical Republicans who would support a revenue neutral carbon tax or maybe net metering in their home state if it creates jobs, but they kind of stay silent on the issue. It's it's mostly about like opportunism and and practicality. And then there are the more out in front free marketeers who are speaking boldly about this issue. And there are a lot of different flavors of folks. Um, there's probably a bunch of other factions. How would you group the conservatives who are actually talking about this issue. Hmm. That was an interesting typology that you just uh, created there, Stephen. I, it, it, it cuts across climate. Um, so I hadn't really thought about it like that before. You're right that there's, I mean, well, it, it is kind of amazing to me that on the clean energy side, there's, different organizations and, and politicians that are really positioning themselves as the champions of clean energy. And in one state, they might be for, um, they might be, a, you know, running a campaign against the utility. And in another state, they might be running a campaign with the utility. And uh, it is, it is fascinating. Um, but on the climate side, to create a taxonomy of, of Republicans on the climate side, okay, I'm up for it. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> let's see if we can get through uh, this. Let's see if we can do this. Um, okay. Well, firstly, there's the hoaxers, right? They're the most famous. Um, they're, or, or the utterly dismissive, but let's just call them the hoaxers. There's a lot of them. They are, um, un unlikely to decline too quickly in numbers unless if the fringe base of the primary voting GOP in the reddest districts were to change, which I don't see happening imminently, or a whole lot more Republicans in those red districts were to rise to full citizenship and participate more actively in politics, which is tough, but not impossible. Um, none of those hoaxers, as far as I know, have ever been beaten in a primary. So there's not really a credible threat to them. Um, so say these members, I'd say maybe a quarter to a third of the Republican House and just a handful of senators. Um, then there are the... What do we call the folks that don't want to talk about it? Let's call them the avoiders. The avoiders. I like that. Uh, they understand to you know largely that the orthodoxy is probably wrong, um, and they want to. They're they're looking for ways to not alienate their base and to not alienate the independents and ordinary Republicans in their district by sounding too much like a lunatic. So they see, but they, they, when they're looking at climate change, the, the limited amount of time that they look at it, they see all downside and no upside in climate leadership. So unless, you know, a wave election makes their safe district more vulnerable, they're unlikely to see that upside until eco rights roots start to take shape or that, um, those, like I said, with the hoaxers, those, 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 their, their, their constituents you know, um, conservative leaning constituents rise to fuller citizenship and become more active in the process. And and that's really some place or place where environmental organizations should be focusing more. And we're trying to focus and, and, and developing that engagement um, because, you know, those people exist. They're just, they're on the sidelines. And if they weren't on the sidelines, the avoiders would be in the game. So I, the, the, for the avoiders, let's, their motto would be, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> Well, you guys are probably going after the avoiders more than anyone, right? I, I think we're, we're, we, the avoiders are important, um, but 
there are also a large number of I, I let's call them um, climate realists that don't really have much to say because they're they're tepid um, or cautious. The uh, um, one-liner, the one-liner realists. Um, so the, the one-liner realists will say climate change is real and probably human caused or mostly human caused. And then they'll say one or two lines about why they aren't doing squat about it. So it's usually something about innovation or how we are bringing down emissions or how, you know, Paris, the cord sucked or something about Obama or about gen- just general solution aversion. You know, it, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, we should study it. Um, but all the solutions I've seen are terrible and they grow government and Obama's the worst. And, uh, you know, I promise not to raise your taxes. Um, so they're, they're not going to be caught saying that it's a hoax or not engaging with the issue or they're going to answer the question. They're going to say it's real and then they're going to give you an excuse. And you're right. Those are the where they, they can make the biggest difference are with the avoiders and the one-liner realists. They can also make a big difference with the with like a group that a, a little smaller. I mean, this would be like the Climate Solutions Caucus members. Um, they're not necessarily like out there, you know, barnstorming on climate. Um, but we'll, we'll call let's call them explorers, um, because they you know they're they think of like the Climate Solutions Caucus members that the Enviros roll their eyes at. Uh, so I, I mean, I love these guys. Uh, God bless them for joining the Climate Solutions Caucus and and being privy. To, I mean, joining conversations about climate solutions, but and most I think are genuinely interested in telling their districts that they're good on climate and probably have that same impulse that the you know the realists and the avoiders have that you know they know that the orthodoxy is wrong on this. But they don't necessarily. They don't want to be for a carbon tax now. They don't want to be painted as as somehow like more Democrat on this issue because it's easy to do that. Um, and they want the policies that they support to be easier to swallow. So they're just kind of getting their feet wet. Maybe there's another w- w- title we could give give for them. Um, they're, they're looking at these like small marginal policies to show leadership on a huge complicated issue. But it is very uncomfortable to be in that kind of in that category here. Explorers is an uncomfortable place to be. Um, so I think there's kind of a lot of pressure to either fall back into the one-liner realist camp or to become a climate leader because it's hard to be a realist on the scale and urgency of the problem and to just kind of tinker around with marginal small ball solutions, but there are leaders. So let's say that's the top of the pyramid here. There's, there's a, you know, a dozen or so in the house, um, a handful or so in the Senate, that actively pursue policies and discussions about, um, you know, climate, climate mitigation. And they're actively looking at supporting or introducing legislation that would be commensurate with the, you know, the scale of the challenge, or at least on the way to commensurate with the scale of the challenge. And we, we haven't seen this legislation yet, but I mean, it's, it's just trust me that there are people working on it. Um, and we don't lobby, so I'm not really the guy to tell you what's the, the machinations of the of the bill making process. But I know that there are there's a, a few handfuls of really passionate Republicans in the House um, that that want to see Republican led climate legislation and that are trying to figure out how to do it. Well, then give me something to be inspired about to wrap up this conversation. We've we've. Um kind of walk through the criticisms of both parties, 
but you're going all around the country. You're talking to young people. You're talking to politicians across the spectrum. What inspires you or gives you hope that these groups are going to consolidate or be influenced by the eco right? One of my one of the questions that I always try to ask members of Congress when I have the chance is how many of your constituents calling you about climate change would make it your number one issue or would make it really important to your office? Do you have a guess, Stephen, like what the typical answer is from a House member for how many of their, let's say, uh, how many of their conservative leaning constituents telling them they care about climate change would make it one of their top issues? Well, I'm assuming that it's not that many. I mean, in the hundreds. That's, yeah, exactly. It, about a hundred is the most common thing I hear. Um, there are, you know, I, I've heard a senator say two hundred in his state. How hard is that? A hundred people where you live? Is that? I mean, is that impossible? Can we do that? I, I, I think we can do that. And and if you think about it, like we only need, you know, fifty. We really only need 25, but let you know. Let's we want 50. Let's say Republicans um, in the House to lead on climate, to be one of those leaders. So that means that we need 5,000 voters. Think about that. 5,000. That's nothing. There are 10 times more people listening to this podcast than we need to solve climate change. And when we go talk to conservatives. There are so many that do want to get right on this and that, that, that hunger for solutions and that hunger for conservative leadership. So right now, if you don't, if, if, when you don't speak up, you know, all the crazies speak up, the fringe speaks up, you know, they're honestly, members of Congress, when they, when, if, if they lead on climate, they can tell you the names of probably five or 10 individuals in their district that are going to make their staff's life miserable by calling every day to bitch about whatever they just said. I mean, and that sucks. So be one of the other people, you know, that actually brightens the, the their life a little bit. <laughs> you know, call and say something nice and say why you care about climate change and that you really would appreciate their leadership on it. And it doesn't take that many people to fundamentally change the perception of an issue in an office. So that that's what brings me hope is the fact that we're meeting all these people and it doesn't and, and the members say it doesn't take that many to change their perception of it. So it really means that we still run this country, us, the you know, the people. Um, and that these members of Congress, they really do work for you. And they really do listen to you. So um, I mean that's that's probably the message that I think is most resonant with the conservatives I talk to, that you're the most important environmentalist on earth. You know, you, you can't solve this problem globally without America. And America can't solve it without durable bipartisan legislation, which you can't do without Republicans. And they won't do it without you, without the voters, without re- conservative, you know, constituents speaking up and saying they care. And if, if we start doing that, um, the whole issue changes. Well, that's, that's what gives me hope, Stephen. Well, I've admired your message and your approach for many years and uh, keep up the good work. This was a great conversation. Oh, thanks, Stephen. I'm a big fan of yours too and Green Tech Media and thank you for what you do. Again, that's Alex Bosmoski. He's the Managing Director of Republic EN and you can find out more about this group's work at republicen.org. It's just like Republican but with an 
E at the end, republicen.org. Uh, they've got this Encourage tour where they're going around to states uh, across the country and talking to Republican voters. Um, they've got a great social media channel where they're echoing what's going on in the eco-right. So check them out. And in the meantime, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us on Google, Apple, anywhere you get your shows. And we will catch you next time. And Shay will be back with me in the next episode. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.